Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Someone is watching Polly Nichols. He's skilled at keeping his distance and at remaining just out of sight. He follows her down darkening streets. He notes which shops or pubs she enters. He knows what work she does and when she leaves to return to her lodgings. He knows where she lives. And most importantly, he knows who she's been living with. He inquires about her in the neighborhood but he does so subtly, in a way that won't raise any alarm, that won't give away his presence. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. You're listening to Bad Women, The Ripper Retold, a series about the real lives of the women killed by Jack the Ripper and how we got their stories so wrong. One side money plenty And friends tooth by the score Then fortune smiled upon me London's Fleet Street and its network of narrow tributaries was a hive of activity. The so-called Street of Ink was home to authors, printers, newspaper men and booksellers, every profession dependent upon the written word. Charles Dickens himself frequented these byways, first working as a shoe shiner and then scribbling away in nearby rooms. In workshops all along that thoroughfare, cylinders turned, belts moved, Years clicked in word as type and ink pressed against paper. It's here that Edward Walker plied his trade. As a blacksmith, he fashioned metal parts for the printing presses. He and his wife Caroline also lived nearby, 
amid the worn of crumbling old buildings with leaking roofs and rotting floors. In their cramped and ramshackle dwelling, on August 26, 1845, they welcomed a daughter, Polly. The printing presses of Fleet Street offered Polly, her parents, and her two brothers a humble yet steady existence. Edward's wages as a blacksmith were constant, but low. As a skilled tradesman whose income was better than that of a bricklayer or a dock worker, one might think the family would have enjoyed a comfortable life. Instead, they would have inhabited no more than two or three rooms, each about eight by ten feet in size. They would have cooked on a fire in their hearth and relieved themselves in a chamber pot in the corner of the room. It was not uncommon for the entire family to share a single bed. Privacy was almost unheard of. Nevertheless, Edward put a few pennies aside to send his children to school. Schooling would not be compulsory until 1876, and Polly was unusually literate for a working-class girl. This was one of the few advantages conferred by proximity to Fleet Street. Many dwellings here lacked plumbing, so residents scooped up dirty, stagnant water from puddles for cooking and cleaning. Blocked chimneys and poor ventilation trapped heavy, sulfuric coal smoke in rooms, which contributed to a host of respiratory illnesses. Diseases such as bronchitis, dysentery, cholera and typhus were rife, especially in the warmer months, when the stench also became unbearable. Polly was not yet seven years old when her mother began to display the symptoms of what appeared to be flu. It began with a cough, which eventually grew worse. And as the illness settled in her lungs, her dreadful racking became blood-laced. At this time, tuberculosis went by the name of consumption. The sufferer was simply consumed by the disease and wasted away. It's bacterial infection that attacks the lungs and is spread by coughs and sneezes. Antibiotics hadn't yet been invented, and malnutrition and physical exhaustion, which were part of working-class life, enabled the disease to take hold with ease. Consumption was a death sentence, and it quickly claimed Polly's mother. At this time, people didn't entirely understand how tuberculosis spread, and so women, who usually nursed the ill, often caught it and passed it on within their families. This was almost certainly how Polly's youngest brother contracted the disease. He quickly followed his mother to the grave. Although she was still a child herself, the loss of her mother propelled Polly into a position of responsibility within what was now a household of three. Every Victorian household needed a woman to cook and clean. Men, who were expected to go out and earn a wage, did not launder the clothes or bake the bread. At the same time, Polly found herself in an unusually fortunate position. Unlike most working-class households, her family was now small, and once her elder brother was old enough to enter the workplace, there were two male earners and only three mouths to feed. This situation allowed Polly to continue her schooling into her early teens. It also helped to cement a strong bond between Polly and her father, one which would last until her murder. Living a short walk away from Polly's home, was a man with a broad, sunny face and light hair. We know nothing about their courtship, but we do know that just before Christmas 1863, William Nichols proposed to the blacksmith's daughter. They were married a month later at St. Bride's Church. 
Planned parenthood did not exist for the 19th century working classes. Married couples didn't get to choose when they wanted to start a family. The making of that family began on the wedding night. Whether a couple was as comfortable as Queen Victoria and Prince Albert or penniless, a woman's entire duty in life was to marry and then to make and look after children. So life as a wife and mother began for Polly immediately. She bore her first baby just under 11 months after her wedding. Unfortunately, this child died after a year and nine months. But other pregnancies and births followed at regular intervals. Each child stretched William's earnings further. The expanding Nichols family had been sharing a home with Polly's father and brother. Due to a housing shortage, the combined incomes of three male wage earners were still not enough to pay the rent on spacious, clean family accommodation. Instead, they were forced to make do with the usual cramped, noisy and unhealthy living quarters. But then, William and Polly learned of a new housing initiative. It looked as if this might solve all of their problems. In 1862, the American expat philanthropist and financier, George Peabody, had wished to give something back to the people of his adopted city of London. He chose to gift the princely sum of £500,000 to London's poor and needy, nearly $500 million relative to the wages of today. My object being to ameliorate the condition of the poor and needy of this great metropolis and to promote their comfort and happiness. Peabody was himself from humble beginnings in Massachusetts, but by the end of his life he had amassed a vast fortune with no obvious heir. He decided to erect apartment buildings all over London. But Peabody's gift to London's working classes came with strings attached. He'd only housed the poor who displayed moral character and good conduct as a member of society. Essentially, Peabody's gift was only for the worthy poor, those whom he judged to lead a morally upright life. Peabody was very keen and his trustees were very keen to make sure that you didn't attract people who seemed to want something for nothing. Historian Sarah Wise is an authority on 19th century social history and on how the Victorians classified some poor people as more deserving than others. People who could show that they were sober and quiet and kept themselves to themselves, that they understood the importance of cleanliness. The people they didn't want were those who they considered to be loafers people who had no intention of earning their own living for themselves or of even trying to do so. Habitual drunkards were disqualified, as was anyone who had been entangled with the law. Having more than four children was frowned upon. And while you had to be able to afford the rent at the Peabody buildings, you also couldn't have too great of an income. Entry requirements were narrow and the admissions process rigorous. The trustees would have called at the Nichols home, where they would have found William, Polly, and their three children dressed in their Sunday best, the rooms swept and tidy. There would have been no indication of low morals or alcoholism, and William's employer would have endorsed him as an industrious family man. The Nichols application was successful, and the family took up residence in an apartment, or flat, at number 3 Stamford Street. They now had four rooms all to themselves and access to all kinds of modern conveniences, including laundry facilities, a stove to cook on, and a working indoor toilet. 
In the basement or the ground floors, you had the baths, which was a real step forward. So you could have any amounts of baths that you wanted totally for free. That was all included in your rent. Unfortunately, these were cold water bath facilities, but that would have been seen as absolute luxury because there was always that struggle to obtain good, clean water in which to do anything, let alone to wash on a daily basis. There were other innovations at these buildings too, things like rubbish chutes to keep trash away from the living quarters. So it really was kind of at the forefront of what the Victorians called sanitary science. Everything possible was built in to make sure that the residents could keep themselves and the block as clean as possible. Communal spaces were to be kept immaculate. Corridors and steps were to be swept every day and washed every Saturday. There was a perceived connection between moral purity and physical cleanliness. It was believed that Peabody's residents, inspired by their own well-scrubbed bodies and fresh-smelling clothes, would wish to maintain their surroundings and keep them free of filth. William and Polly surely felt a sense of pride. They were moving up in the world. Their new apartment marked a contrast with their previous and wretched living conditions. The private sector allowed very poor people to make their living in a wide range of ways which would be absolutely unthinkable in any philanthropic block. So all sorts of really smelly, unpleasant industries such as chopping up bits of old horse to make cat's meat, all sorts of fish smoking, actually very high-skilled artisan trades that involve banging and hammering and varnishes and polishes and flames or machinery. Peabody Housing offered the Nichols family peace, quiet and cleanliness. But there were also strict rules that the worthy poor had to follow. You had to agree to either have been vaccinated against smallpox or you were going to be. No hanging out of your laundry in your own room. Children can't play on the stairs or corridors. No dogs, no lodgers, no trading. No intemperance or disorderly behaviour. Intemperance meant indulgence in alcohol. Apparently that was immediate notice to quit. The gas goes off at 11pm and you can't put wallpaper or any pictures up in your home. But the Peabody buildings didn't suit everyone. There was a real love of colour and music and joy amongst every section of the working class and many of them may have just psychologically thought, no, I can't hack this. Those who could hack it were said to quickly acquire decent habits. People like to be as good as their neighbours, remarked the superintendent of Polly and Williams' building. And although the move to the Peabody building significantly improved the Nichols family's quality of life, Williams' salary was stretched further by the arrival of a fourth child. This financial strain meant that in 1877, the family was forced to downsize and exchange their four-room apartment a three-room one. Their new abode was next door to a woman named Rosetta Walls. Rosetta had married a ship's cook. He spent more time at sea than with Rosetta, and the pair had drifted apart. She earned an income as a charwoman or a cleaning lady, and by also picking up odd jobs. In 1878, when Polly gave birth to a fifth child, a son, Rosetta stepped in to assist her. The two households shared walls, a toilet, and a sink. The doors were always open, which fostered a sense of intimacy between the two families. We cannot know exactly when or why the arguments between Polly and William began. Perhaps their new closer quarters 
larger family, and greater financial pressures all played a role. William Nichols asserted that his wife suddenly began drinking, excessively, and that this was the source of their strife. Polly's father, Edward, would offer another explanation. William Nichols had begun an affair with Rosetta Walls. Perhaps Polly was exhausted and suffering from postnatal depression. Perhaps she was jealous of Rosetta Walls. Perhaps both were true. And she just turned to alcohol to lighten these burdens. We cannot know. But on March 29th, 1880, Polly was finally tired of arguing. She handed her children over to their father and walked through the gates of the Peabody buildings, never to return. Everything about Polly's life was about to change. She could not begin to imagine what was coming. The Ripper Retold will be back in a moment. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for business, for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Polly's decision to walk out on her husband in 1880, possibly because he was seeing another woman, was an unusual one. Most of the time, women leave if they're being beaten to a pulp. Historian Ginger Frost is witty and straight-talking and an expert on Victorian family life. Sometimes they will leave if he's not providing. There really is no reason to stay if he's a poor provider or he's drunk all the time or he gambles all the money away. If you're not being provided for, that's what the man brings to the table. If he can't bring that, there's no reason to stay. Walking out on your children, as Polly did, is even less common. That is very rare. Most women don't want to leave their children. They just stay. They put up with it. That's the main response of women. It's the men who usually leave. So it is a bit unusual for a wife to walk out, especially if they have children together. We discussed what might have been behind Polly's decision to leave, including the credibility of William Nichols' claim that his wife was an alcoholic. There are lots of unknowns here. I think if he's right, now this is self-serving, so you never know if what he's saying is true. It could be that she was drinking and that he removed all the drink and wouldn't let her have it. And so she had classic alcoholism, right? You start trading everything you care about for the drug of choice. 
And so that could have happened, but there's no way to know. I find those kinds of arguments by husbands so self-serving, I have trouble believing them. But I guess sometimes they can't be true. (laughs) I think it's possible, but I think then you have to take into account her father's side of the story, which is she and her husband were arguing, and it was because he was carrying on with the woman next door that she left. They could both be true. He could have been carrying on and she took to drink because of that. I think this may remain a mystery. I don't think we're ever really going to get to the bottom of this other than to speculate because, you know, as with any dispute, there are always two sides. And the one thing that we're not hearing in all of this, and I think this is true of all five victims and is true in any murder case, really, is the one person we don't hear from is the person who was killed. Yeah, the victim is always silent. Yes. And the easiest way to get someone off is to make the victim the villain. Polly suffered financial, social and emotional consequences for walking out on her family. Striking out on her own, she had few choices. Ideally, she would have been expected to live with relatives or she could try to make ends meet with grueling physical labour such as domestic service or work in an industrial laundry. But whatever she chose, she faced an empty existence in a society where a woman without a family or a husband was viewed with deep suspicion. Such a woman was an aberration, and invariably also assumed to be sexually immoral. Culpability did not matter to Victorian society. If a woman left her family, she had failed. We cannot underestimate Polly's internalized sense of shame at this point. She had lost her home, her husband, her dignity, and her very reason for being. There was no way of severing ties to William and starting afresh, either. For a woman of Polly's class and means, divorce was practically impossible. The English did not have divorce until 1857. You could get separated by the church before that, but it was not a divorce. You could not remarry. After 1857, they did have secular divorce, but they limited it in a number of ways. And it was very expensive. There was only one court, and it was in London. So if you had witnesses, then you had to pay their expenses to come in. There were court fees and solicitor's fees for this as well. And it was gendered. That gendered aspect of divorce was all about a double standard between men and women. So men could divorce for a single act of adultery of their wives, but women had to have adultery and another ground. A ground such as cruelty, desertion, incest, bigamy, or my personal favorite, bestiality. The other thing to remember about English divorce was that it required what they called clean hands, which meant that the petitioning party that wanted the divorce could not have committed a matrimonial offense themselves. So for the most part, it was a compromise. It was a compromise between people who didn't want women to be able to sue at all, who wanted divorce to be only for men, and those who argued that there should be equal grounds between men and women. So they did a compromise between those two. They allowed women to sue, but it was harder for women to sue. And this was, of course, if you had money. If you didn't have money, how would you effectively end your marriage? For the most part, working class people simply walked away. They divorced with their feet. There was no way to do it legally unless they somehow came into a fortune. Respectable society simply did not cater to men and women who were openly separated. Separation was judged to be a living death because married couples who split apart could never fully move on with their lives. Any future relationship would be considered adulterous. After Polly walked out, William's bond with Rosetta developed. 
and she effectively became an adoptive mother to his children. However, as their extramarital relationship directly contravened Peabody's rules, the couple was forced to find another home. Any time that their irregular situation got exposed, they were going to face consequences, social more than legal consequences. It's not illegal what they're doing. It's just socially problematic. What I find is people who live together but were not married, almost all of which are adulterous because they can't get divorced, they bump along okay. They can tell their neighbors they're married. They act like husband and wife. It's when they run into trouble when it gets exposed, because no matter how long you've lived together, no matter how much you love each other, no matter how much you love your children, you are not married in the eyes of the state. And the state will treat your children as illegitimate children, which means they don't have a legal father. They don't even really have a legal mother. She's just responsible for supporting them. There's far more consequences for the working class woman, but the man is not without them. For her part, Polly faced not only degradation, but also abject poverty. The work available to women at the time was deliberately designed to pay less than a male wage because women were intended to be dependent on men. Ironically, Polly's only hope of securing an income was to prove she was completely destitute and to enter her local workhouse. The Ripper Retold will be back in a moment. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices, Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Few places were more feared or reviled than the workhouse. This austere and foreboding institution was funded by taxes or rates, and offered accommodation and basic rations to those who were unable to support themselves. Men performed tasks such as stonebreaking. Women did laundry work, prepared food and picked oakum, the arduous process of separating out fibres from old ship's ropes to sell them on. on, One of the primary functions of the workhouse was to humiliate those who relied upon it. Regardless of their circumstances, the old, the infirm, the sick, the abandoned and the able-bodied, were treated with equal disdain. In the workhouse, Polly could expect to experience constant hunger, frequent illness, and broken sleep. Beatings and bullying at the hands of both staff and by fellow inmates were common. Restricted access to water, exposure to rats, lice, and contaminated food ensured that inmates regularly suffered from diarrhea and infections. These grim conditions, well known to those outside the workhouse walls, were partly about deterrence. 
they highlight the Victorian belief that poverty was, somehow, a choice, a question of moral deficiency, as much as one of material lack. Inmates were judged to be lazy and immoral paupers, who refused to do honest work, and had to be broken into submission. When Polly approached Lambeth Union Workhouse, she would likely have been fearful, aware that once she passed through its gates, she would be tainted. However, it was only with the approval of the workhouse guardians that she would be able to secure regular alimony or maintenance payments from William. The legal basis of it is that the ratepayers are supporting her when her husband should be. And so she would go to the workhouse and then they would basically sue him to get the money for her maintenance from him. And they could bring a criminal case against him for non-support of his wife. But usually all you had to do was send a letter to the husband and say, we are the guardians of this parish and we're supporting your wife and you should be supporting your wife. So we expect you to remove her or to repay us for her maintenance. And at that point, he has to decide how to respond to that. Usually men would offer money. They would say, I can pay this much. And lots of times the parish would take the deal. I can't afford six shillings a week, but I can afford three. They'll take the three, usually, to help offset the money. Even after the court started giving women maintenance payments, getting the men to pay it was what was hard. A man could, even if you arrested him and he was found guilty, he'd get a couple of months in jail, and then he'd be out, and the debt is wiped clean by the jail sentence. And then you'd start the process over, but you never get the money. Securing maintenance from William was far from easy. Polly had to claim desertion, and the guardians regarded women who declared themselves deserted with profound suspicion. Upon entrance, Polly underwent a verbal examination from one or more officials to determine whether she was worthy of aid. Their questions prodded and probed and were steeped in judgment. They began by asking her her full name, her age, address, and her marital status. Then the questions escalated. Do you have any relatives who are legally bound to support you? What is your husband's name? What does he earn? How many children do you have? Are they legitimate? That last question was designed to mortify Polly and prompt her to reveal the embarrassing details of her marriage breakdown. Next, William Nichols was made to account for himself. He was interviewed by the official handling Polly's case. Nichols likely told him that Polly was not a deserted wife at all, but that their marriage ended because of her drinking. He had a vested interest in sullying her name. The official was unconvinced, however, and he compelled William to pay five shillings per week, a pittance, which Polly then collected from the workhouse. When a marriage breaks down in the working class, it's hard on both because the man can't afford two households. So if he's supporting his wife, his legal wife, and another woman, almost no working class man can afford that. They can barely get by with one household. So unless she can make her own money or unless she hooks up with someone else, unless she ends up living with another person, that is not a viable financial situation for either party. If William could prove that Polly was living with another man, that she was someone else's financial problem, he could wriggle free of his obligations to her. For a time, it seems Polly had taken up with another man. And it was around this point that William Nichols engaged the spying services of a private eye. Private investigation agents regularly advertised in London's newspapers. Procuring evidence for divorce cases was always listed prominently among their services offered. Private detective offices. 
conducted by Mrs Cameron and Co. Divorce and all confidential cases investigated with secrecy and dispatch by experienced detectives. Evidence collected and witnesses found for any law cases and their evidence taken. Foreign languages spoken and translated. A spy followed Polly, watching her, asking about her in the neighbourhood, obtaining the necessary evidence and presenting it to William, who promptly ceased his payments. Eventually, William was summoned to the magistrate's court to explain himself. He was prepared and produced his proof. Polly denied that she was living with another man, but the judge sided with William and absolved him of his financial responsibilities. In all probability, Polly's relationship with the other man had ended by this point. If it hadn't, she would not have found herself destitute when William's five-shilling payments were terminated. If she had another viable means of supporting herself, such as sex work, as it has been suggested, she would not have had to surrender herself once more to the stony embrace of Lambeth Union Workhouse. Over the next few years, Polly was in and out of the workhouse. At one point, she went to live with her father, brother, his wife and their five children in their small home. She reportedly spent a lot of time at the local pub and her drinking caused arguments. According to Edward Walker, his daughter did not stay out particularly late and nor had he ever heard of her conduct being, as he said, improper. Nevertheless, in 1884, Polly's behaviour apparently rendered home life impossible. She thought she was better by herself, her father said. So I let her go. At this point, Polly had neither a husband nor a family at her side. She was alone, with little possibility of supporting herself and placing a roof over her own head. In the following years, she oscillated between the workhouse, temporary lodging houses or DOS houses and the cold cobblestones of the streets. In 1887, she was sleeping rough, one of an estimated 70,000 homeless people in London that year. The experience was a miserable one. Women like Polly, who found themselves without shelter, would even expect to become the victims of sexual violence. But this is not the point in our story where Polly meets her end. As had been the case throughout her life, there were choices and opportunities before her, and events that altered her trajectory. In the spring of 1888, the workhouse found her a job as a domestic servant. This was part of a scheme to rehabilitate inmates. She was dispatched to the Cowdries, a Baptist couple who lived in a large house surrounded by gardens and trees. Polly arrived on May 12th with nothing more than the clothes on her back. Mrs Cowdery supplied her with various necessities, including shoes, a decent bonnet, a nightdress, caps, pinafores and hair combs. After all, no middle-class mistress wanted her maid to appear ragged before visitors. In her first week with the Cowdrys, Polly gathered the courage to write to her father, who was now living with her eldest son. I just write to say you will be glad to know that I am settled in my new place and going all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am left in charge. It is a grand place, with trees and gardens back and front. All has been newly done up. They are teetotalers and very religious, so I ought to get on. They're very nice people, and I have not much to do. I do hope you are all right and the boy has work. 
So, goodbye for the present. Yours truly, Polly. Answer soon, please, and let me know how you are. Polly's experiences at the Cowdery's would have been more comfortable than life sleeping rough or at the workhouse. She had the use of the garden, ate three meals a day and wore clean clothes. But perhaps she was also lonely, marched to chapel by the religious Cowdery's and shamed for the life that she had thus far led. There was no other servant with whom to chat or share jokes, and separated from her family, her days and nights may have seemed painfully empty. Whatever the reason, for a second time in her life, Polly made the decision to walk out. In July 1888, she took her new belongings with her and simply disappeared. This time, she ended up in Whitechapel, Jack the Ripper's hunting ground. In six weeks' time, she would be dead, and her story would cease to be her own. Society would pick at her carcass, raking over not only the grim details of her demise, but also linking her murder to the supposed depravity of her existence. Because, in the end, bad women get what's coming to them. Bad Women The Ripper Retold is brought to you by Pushkin Industries and me, Hallie Rubenhold, and is based on my book, The Five. It was produced and co-written by Ryan Dilley and Alice Fines, with help from Pete Norton. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show, and composed all the original music. You also heard the voice talents of Saul Boyer, Melanie Guttridge, Gemma Saunders and Rufus Wright. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Mia LaBelle, Jacob Weisberg, Jen Guerra, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, and Daniela Lacan. With special thanks to my agents, Sarah Ballard and Ellie Cairns.